Almighty God, you are our maker and our sovereign king. You made us to praise you and to make your glory known wherever we go. You made us to praise you in our creativity and in our joy, in our dancing and with our instruments. You made us, Lord God, to praise you with excitement in our voices. You also rule us as our righteous judge who has already written the judgment with which all will be judged. Your servants in the Lamb's book of life, the unbelieving to the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have called us here and we freely come as your redeemed people, offering you the praise of hands that you have made holy, lifted in prayer, of voices that you have revived, singing new praise songs to you, of hearts that you have turned from stone into flesh, testifying of the glories of the mercy of Christ Jesus, and of lives that you have saved from death, humbly wearing your salvation. Hold sway here, Holy Spirit, by your indomitable and awesome power, making much of Christ Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Please turn to Genesis 2, and we will start there. As you're turning there, in Genesis chapter 2, as the day 6 creation of Adam and Eve is being described in greater detail than just the five verses of Genesis 1, 26 to 30, Adam, the man, is created and the need for Eve is explained. So in verses 21 to 22 of chapter 2 of Genesis, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, makes Eve out of man. Now she is not called Eve yet, and that comes immediately after the fall and the curses at the end of chapter 3. Here in Genesis 2.22, Moses, the writer, calls her woman in Hebrew. This is Ishah. The first time it's used in the Bible, this word. Up to now, Adam has been Adam, his Hebrew name, but the very next verse, 23, reads, Then the man, that is Adam, said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, that is Ishah, because she was taken out of man, that is the Hebrew word Ish. This is the first use of the word ish for man in the Bible. Adam created a poem in praise of the Lord God because Isha, woman, was created out of ish, the man, because the Lord God perfectly made them for one another. Can someone bring me a Kleenex? Um, a tissue. It was after this, at the end of the sixth day in Genesis 131, 
that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Thank you, brother. This Adamic poem of praise is the first psalm written ever by any person. As I have preached through the last five psalms in our Bible book of the psalms, we have noticed just how much of an ordered set they are. They are called the Hallel Psalms because each one begins and ends with the Hebrew word Hallelujah. In English, praise the Lord. In Isaiah 1, 18 to 20, the prophet quotes the Lord of hosts. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you hear in that passage how God is not a sovereign, a king, who lords his rule over his people. No, he is a sovereign who wants his people to willingly obey. He wants to explain just how reasonable and sensible his rule is. And it's even more than that. The Lord of hosts will have his creation know that he knows their sinful state. And he's not taking advantage of our sinful disadvantage in order to pry obedience out of us because we have no other, no other choice. No, he will take advantage, he, he will take our disadvantage, our sin, and by his own power, in chapter 59 of Isaiah, he will say by his own arm, he will atone for our sin. This this is a God worthy to be praised. Turn to Psalm 149. Now we'll be there uh, and stay there, I think. Um, verse 1 is sing to the Lord a new song. The word song is directly derived from the word sing. The song being new comes out of the idea in harvest time of freshness of something that hadn't been until it came forth. It doesn't carry the weight of being new in kind, but does signify that new songs of the same kind of praise to the Lord are to come out of God's people. This is the first occurrence of the phrase new song in the Hallel Psalms, but it shows up two other times in two other Psalms, 33 and 96. Psalm 33 shows God as creator and good to his creation. Whereas Psalm 96, he is the saving God of splendor and majesty, strength and beauty, glory and again strength. The new song also shows up in the New Testament, but only in Revelation. In chapter 5, the four living creatures and the 24 elders all fall down in worship before Revelation's Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And they sing this new song. This is it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Now that's chapter 5. Also in chapter 14 of Revelation, a, a new song is sung by the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They are described as the only ones who can learn it. And that concept of exclusivity of knowledge in Revelation is a, is a saving intimacy. In chapter 2, one of the letters to the churches in Revelation, the one who conquers will be given a white stone with a new name that no one knows except the one who received it. This is a saving intimacy with God. So it's a great honor for these 144,000 redeemed to be given the grace to be able to learn this new song, this song of praise to God and to the Lamb. But this Hallel Psalm is for the whole people of God. God's people here are the godly. As you look through Psalm 149, you'll see these terms. God's people here are described as the godly, as Israel, as the children of Zion, his people, the humble. And then at the end of the psalm, godly again, and his godly ones. There's three descriptors of ownership here by God of his people. Israel and the children of God and his people. That is God's people. Do you hear the, the endearing names? Israel is a personal name used for the whole nation. The children of Zion, dear to their heavenly father and his people. These are, are the ones God has brought near to himself. And remember as we Think of God's people being described. Remember 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God, cho God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. These ones that God has brought near to himself are the undeserving, the foolish, the weak, the low and despised. If God has placed his grace on you, if he has brought you near to him in mercy, rest assured it has nothing to do with any good thing that lives in you. All the best and the brightest of the best of us is filthy and degenerate to him who loves righteousness. Draw near to God, sinner. And for no sensible reason, he will draw near to you in the mercies of Christ. He will dress your wounds. He will clean you from the stain and the filth of your sin. All people are called to cry out to God, our maker, and whoever comes to Jesus 
will not be cast out. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All are called to worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know from our memory verses in the worship journal on page five at the, at the top of the page is a two-year cycle of verses that we rotate weekly, usually one verse at a time. On Easter Sunday, we ended with Philippians 2.11, the last verse of the Christ hymn of Philippians. The final sentence begins in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you are here this morning and have not submitted to the universal and personal lordship of Jesus Christ, having cried out to him for forgiveness of your sins, I can tell you as surely as I know anything that one day you will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And that confession will glorify God the Father. But if that confession is not made before you die, it will do nothing except to aggravate, if possible, your conscious, eternal, and fiery torment in the anguish of God's wrath because of your sin and because of your willful rejection of his mercy and forgiveness in the person of his glorious, eternal son, Jesus Christ. God's people in Psalm 149 are brought near to him by the mercies of Christ. The other four descriptors of God's people here in Psalm 149, are, they're, they're adjectives. Uh, godly, three times, and humble, once. The authorized version gives us saints instead of godly, but either way, there is a, a faithful piety implied, a religious kindness central to the meaning. The humble is lowly or meek, commonly with the added notion of piety, which prefers to bear injuries rather than to return them. God's people here at the end of the great book of praise is kind and obedient, lowly and a humble people. Second line of verse 1, his praise in the assembly of the godly. His praise, this phrase, grows out of the root from which we get hallelujah and points not only to the content of the new song, but is also defined as a praise hymn itself. The, the word is, is very often a praise hymn itself. So his praise here can be seen as restating the new song Idea, And it could be reworded like this. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise him, that new song of praise, in the assembly of the godly. The word assembly is first used all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. Uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, repeats the covenant that he received 
to Jacob. He repeats this to Jacob in chapter 28. And Isaac says to Jacob, his son, when he sends Jacob off to get his wife, he says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples, this, this assembly, this company of peoples. In the Hebrew and in most English translations, this word for God's gathered people is the same in Psalm 149 and Genesis 28. Now Luke, the gospel writer of the writer of the, and the writer of the book of Acts, when he wants to describe the church, when he's describing God's gathered people, he reached back into his Greek Old Testament and used this word from Psalm 149, the Greek word ekklesia, which means a people called out, presumably from their private homes, into a public gathering of people. All that to say this assembly of the godly is likely God's people called out into public worship of the Lord in song. In verse 2, uh, let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Uh, God here is maker and king. Are there two words more imbued with sovereign authority than maker and king? So God is maker. What, what, what's he maker of in this psalm? Well, in Psalm 146, the first of the Hallel Psalms, God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. In Psalms 147 and 148, he is the sovereign creator God, ruling over and providing for his creation in all authority and in goodness. But here in, Psalm, in verse 2 of Psalm 149, he is maker of his people, Israel. Remember how deliberate God was back in Genesis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how God orchestrated this people that he chose and the, the abject chaos that was their lives. Yet our New Testaments tell us that God did this to the praise of his glorious grace. The passage we just read in 1 Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. That speaks to me because I feel like I am not sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I'm, 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 Parading from a failure to the next failure to the next failure in my life. What is, what is the need for this? What, what, is, what is the reason for God's choosing a people and that, that God-likeness that's being worked in us? Why, why is it so troubling so often? Well, in 1 Corinthians, um, he says, so that, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has a glorious end for us. And we are called uh, out of darkness into his light 
and the path is difficult. You think God is jealous for his own glory? It's for our own good. Look at the mess that is God's people. You think things are bad in your house. Read the middle of Genesis. We're going through it in men's Bible study on Saturday mornings. And uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that is a crazy messed up family. We should be better off. We should be better off with the Holy Spirit of God poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. But then why? Why the need for half of all the New Testament letters to be full of commandments to play nice? Because God is our sovereign king and he has a glorious end for us. In his sovereign creating, he decreed his holy people should be built up in this way. We are in process. And the process is often not pretty. But rest assured, God our maker is making a people for himself. Out of Titus, um, I'll never stop quoting this passage too. Verses 11 to 14, we see our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He's redeeming us from all lawlessness and purifying for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. And he does this by his grace. Let us rejoice in our maker and our king. In verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. So I get to preach on dancing. Um, this command to praise the Lord with dancing, melody, and instruments comes on the heels of their of God's people's acknowledgement of him as their maker and their king. Dancing biblically is implicitly always and explicitly almost always to musical accompaniment and an indication of a heart rejoicing at God's goodness in provision and in salvation, in providing for us and in saving us. The New Testament is helpful only so far as it confirms the Old Testament's association of dance with a happy heart and with music. The New Testament can also carry with it a warning as dancing and its pleasing effect is what ended up costing John the Baptist his head. Remember Herodias' daughter danced before King Herod and he was so pleased he offered her anything. Safe to say this was not the kind of dancing that was also used in worshiping the Lord. It is instructive, I think, that dancing is absent. Dancing in the New Testament is absent from the book of Acts through to Revelation. It's just not there. 
This absence speaks volumes. There is no scriptural support for dancing in New Testament worship services. And on top of that, the testimony of New Testament biblical times in Palestine and the Roman world from the early church is that dancing was absent there as well in, in worship. The avoidance of many forms of dancing is a clear wisdom. Vulgar, profane, and sensual movements and dances obviously should be avoided. And being audience to these things is likewise sinful. There is no way to reconcile the frequenting of clubs and their indiscriminate dancing with a, truly, with a true desire for a godly life. Please listen closely. The praising of God involves the whole being, our body and our soul. Our innate desire for movement and the testimony in God's creation of, of, of twirling and spinning movements in our world, planets. Uh, you, you can't throw a rock without it, it being an arc. That, that, that whole idea of, of movement and the shape of movement is ingrained in creation. And with a biblical moral compass, we can be guided to praise God and dance in our homes, in family and friendly gatherings, and in public, even up to the highest levels of artistic expression. Godward focus of the heart and the will is key. As in verse 4 is delight of the Lord from a humble people. In verse 4, um, Psalm 149, uh, the only, it's, it's the only reason given for praising the Lord in this psalm. Now, I, I, I point that out uh, because the commands here are frequent. Uh, look at the beginning of the psalm, the command to sing, the command to be glad, the command to rejoice and praise and make melody, and then skip forward to verse 5, to exult, to sing again, to praise again. Now, remember back in Psalms 146 and 147, there was barely a command given. Now, now each of the Hallel Psalms begins and ends with the command, praise the Lord. But 146, um, outside that, there is only the psalmist's command, his testimony. He's preaching to himself to praise the Lord. And then his command, warning, warning us not to praise other people. But then the rest of the psalm is all full of reasons for praising the Lord. In Psalm 147, the commands are, are only the section markers. In verse 7, sing and make melody. And in verse 12, praise the Lord twice. They were mostly full of reasons for praising the Lord. And then in Psalm 148 and here in 149, it's very command heavy with very few reasons given. These Hallel Psalms, this, this group of five Psalms at the end of our Psalter, they display this pattern. First, the reasons are given to praise the Lord. Then the command is given to praise the Lord. 
God is altogether holier and mightier and wiser and higher than we are. Yet, he bids us to come and consider his glory, his being. What a grace. The Lord is not like us, afraid of someone finding a weakness. For he has no weakness. The multitudes of people who will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth will spend eternity failing to find the end of the Lord. The reason given here to praise the Lord is his pleasure with his people and his saving work on their behalf. The word pleasure in the Psalms mostly has a negative connotation for people. And the implication of sovereignty as it relates to God. Our pleasure is tainted by sin, but God's pleasure is life and peace. In Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 51, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And in Psalm 147, one of our Hallel Psalms, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure, God's pleasure, in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. And what exactly does the Lord's pleasure look like? Salvation. The Lord adorns the humble with salvation. The authorized version says he'll beautify the meek with salvation. That word for adorning, let me read a little of the Hebrew dictionary. To be beautiful, ornamented, apparently used of the rosiness and heat of the face. Not my face. Look at some of the young children. The songwriter, in trying to describe the way sin brings death, he says, we are children no more. We have sinned and grown old. He didn't mean that children are holier than adults. On the contrary, small children have the despotic hearts of a Mongol horde. He meant that the very fact that we grow old is evidence of our sin. Let me say that again. The very fact that we grow old is evidence of our sin. Children with their cherubic faces simply haven't had the time to sin as much. So they're more beautiful. God in beautifying and adorning the humble with salvation has taken away the effect of sin, death. It is the humble that the Lord saves. In Colossians, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The New Testament's primary descriptor of Christ is humility. So one of the chief traits of Christians should be to exhibit this humility. It's the opposite of pride, the great sin of Adam. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, how much more grace could God give to his humble people in salvation from our sin? Verses five to six, the next three lines of poetry. There's two lines in verse five, the, the first line in verse six. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. These final three commands to praise the Lord in song from verses five to six a, they connect the first three verses of this psalm and the command at the end of the psalm that points to the future ruling of God's people according to God's word. These three lines in verses five and six with their verbs of praise and exult and sing for joy, high praises are even more jubilant than the first three verses. God's glory shows up for the only time in the Hallel Psalms, accentuating the jubilation, bringing with, with the word glory, bringing the weight and the beauty of God's glory to bear. Now, beds in the Psalms are where God's people pondered the deep things of God and also where they cried themselves to sleep in the distress of adversity and circumstance. Here, Psalm 149, is, is the only place where they're to praise God on their beds, singing for joy on their beds. The phrase high praise is used only twice in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Psalm 66 that we read earlier, specifically with the mouth and the tongue, the high praise with the mouth and the tongue. And here in Psalm 149, it's, it's with the throat. Praise most gloriously comes from the voice, the voices of the redeemed. But this word high praise emphasizes the singing, the crying out of praise even more. The second line of verse 6 is where the psalm turns. And it turns on those two lines of verse 6. Let me read them for you. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Not too much of a connection between the two lines in English, but the phrase two-edged swords um, has meaning behind it. The word for sword comes to English straight away. But the word for the edge of a sword in Hebrew is the idea of the mouth of the sword. When they talk about the, the edge of the sword, they talk about the mouth of the sword. Because the mouth destroys what it eats, right? And so the sword is said to destroy what it hits. The edge of the sword is, is the mouth of the sword in Hebrew. So the connection, the connection between the two lines are just as in the throats of God's people are to be not just his praises, but his high praises. Likewise, the effectiveness 
of God's vengeance and punishments on nations and kings that do not submit to his rule, the effectiveness of that is doubly effective, that of a two-edged sword or a sword with double the devouring power. So the mouth of the sword and the throats of God's people are both working doubly effective to God's glory. Let me read verses 6 through Nine. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. Verse 6 tells us the judgment is doubly sure. So what about these words vengeance and punishments and judgment? They are all responses to sinful actions. Sinful actions committed by those who are obligated to act rightly. All people have been created in God's image and have been born into a world that was created perfectly. Our first father, Adam, fell in sin and all creation fell with him. And yet the goodness of God's creation of the universe and of mankind obligates all to humble themselves before him. All people in all of creation have been condemned in Adam's sin. And on top of that, we ourselves sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive, our, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? First John. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans. So all have been condemned in Adam and all people continue to condemn themselves. What is a righteous God to do? Condemn all in order that his justice may be satisfied? It really would be just for God to do this. Death and judgment are just appropriate responses to our human condition. What's inappropriate, what's out of place, what's unjust is for the guilty to go free. We read this psalm and we're offended by verses 6 to 9, but the offense is in verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in a people that he himself has to redeem. In our courtrooms, in our human courtrooms, the judge and the prosecutor and the defense attorney all must act independent of one another. If you've been wronged and you go to court and your prosecuting attorney makes a deal with the judge to bring no penalty against the defendant, that's injustice, is it not? But justice has taken place with us, with God. And one has been penalized, but the payment of that penalty has not been applied to everyone. Christ's payment for sin was 100% effective for everyone to whom it was applied. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
from Romans. God, who sent his only begotten son to pay the penalty for lost sinners, cannot be said to have given too little. It is the height of arrogance and willful disobedience to refuse so great a salvation and so vengeance, punishments, and judgment. The first line in verse 9 says that execution of judgment will be what is written to execute on them the judgment written. Note, please, the fact that the judgment coming on those who have refused so great a salvation has been written. It's not a judgment thought up on the spur of the moment. Isaiah, again, distinguishes the one true God from the idols of his day and and our day in a couple of different ways. One of them is that God knows the end from the beginning. That's not because he's Mr. Wizard and he can tell the future, right? It's because he decreed the end from the beginning and all the means in between. I'm going to emphasize right now God's sovereign decrees in judging his creation. And I will also emphasize that all people, though born in sin, are free moral agents. From chapter 3 of the London Baptist Confession, God's decree. God hath decreed, and I'm going to remove some words so that we we hear the, the, the direct line of reasoning here. God hath decreed all things, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, and, and here's what I'm looking at, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. God's decreeing from all eternity what would take place does not violate our will. From chapter 9 of the London Confession, London Baptist Confession of free will, God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. The biblical testimony behind this in John 5 Jesus speaking, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In Deuteronomy, Moses speaking, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. And in James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If anyone explains the doctrines of grace to you, God's predestinating love, his sovereign choosing of a people for himself out of all humanity, Christ's shedding his perfectly and completely effective blood 
only for those given to him by his heavenly father. If anyone explains these doctrines of grace, this biblical truth to you in such a way that they undermine the effort and the dent of your desire for God and his mercy and his blessings and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, they are either a liar or they are horribly misguided. We must reconcile God's absolute sovereignty over all creation, and that includes each of us, with the consequential nature of our actions and words. We can only do this by faith. The judgment, the vengeance on the nations in Psalm 149, the punishments on the peoples, the binding of kings with chains and nobles with fetters of iron, this judgment is written. God has decreed it from of old. It's one of the great Old Testament phrases. And yet those judged have been judged justly. The only thing out of place in this courtroom is the is the adorning with salvation of those with a humility that's not their own. In verse 9, uh, the second line there, God's, God's evaluation of this, of this judgment, this is honor for all his godly ones. These... These godly ones, when a judge walks into a courtroom, what words are spoken loudly to everyone in the courtroom? All rise, right? We've heard that. Well, why? Why is that done? The weight of the responsibility of making judgments that will alter people's lives is significant. We give honor to those who carry that weight. How much more honor will be due to those executing this judgment in the end of times? As believers, we're supposed to be actively judging disputes among ourselves, right? 1 Corinthians 6, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Paul, in 1 Corinthians, is speaking of judgment that Christians are to make among ourselves. This passage in 149, Psalm 149, is clearly eschatological, pointing to the end times. And he uses that language. Listen to Isaiah 24. Uh, On that day, the Lord will punish. There's one of our words from Psalm 149. The Lord will punish the host of, of heaven in heaven and the kings, there's another word, of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. In Isaiah 41, behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. Remember the two-edged sword. And in in Isaiah 45, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. 
They shall follow you. They will come over in chains. Hear the language from from Psalm 149. And they'll bow down to you. They'll plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Evan Waters read for us a passage at the end of the book of Revelation. Did you stick with him to the end of the end of the reading? In chapter 22, verses 3 to 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, this, this glorious city. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And listen closely, and they will reign forever and ever. Who are they? His servants. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't even want, I'm afraid of being a judge. I don't even want to judge small claims court. But somehow in the miracle of God's grace, he will make us able to reign forever and ever. By the light of his glory, that glory that will be ever present in heaven. Let's pray.